today is the last of our series on Moses, part six. And after this, I'll be gone for a couple of weeks and Pastor Ray will be in. Uh, so this is the last one. And I won't be building off of anything uh, we spoke about or I spoke about in the first uh, five messages of the series as we've been working through uh, this whole summer on Moses. This one is just the standalone. There was a whole bunch of stories left over about Moses that I wanted to get to. Of course, we can't get to nearly all of them. And I had a hard time winnowing down which one I was going to do. And so finally, I, I, I just picked. I said, I'm going to do Numbers chapter 16. And we're gonna, I'm going to just preach my way through number 16, and we're going to look at the famous story of Korah's rebellion, all right? Famous story of Korah's rebellion, number 16. Bow your heads with me, close your eyes, let's pray, and then we'll get into this. Heavenly Father, first of all, I just want to praise you because your word is so rich. It is so, so rich. We, this summer, Lord, we have just, we have just taken one character out of, all the thing, out of all the books and all the characters and all the things we could study in your word, we have taken one character and we haven't even been able to finish him. We've only scratched the surface, Father, and the deeper we go into just this one little piece of your word, we find that there is just more and more and more and more. And my prayer today, God, is that as we do this last message on Moses, Father, I pray that all of our hearts will be awakened with a love for your word. Your word is life-giving. And there is so much food there, Jesus. I pray that, that we won't just learn from this, the specifics of this message, but just the glory of your word and the richness of your word would come alive to us and we would, we would be encouraged to study it. And Father, as we go through number 16, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would help me to speak your words. I pray that you would open up our ears to hear and our hearts to receive, Lord, that we can have a visitation from you this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Number 16, the story of Korah's rebellion, starting in verse 1, all right? And I warn you, the first verse here is a whole bunch of names, all right? Now Korah, that's an important one, this message is a lot about him, the son of Izhar, son of Kohath, son of Levi, not the jeans guy, okay? And Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, sons of Reuben, took men, whew, all right, on with the story. Verse 2. And they rose up before Moses with a number of the people of Israel, 250 chiefs of the congregation, chosen from the assembly, well-known men. They assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, You have gone too far, for all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And, and uh, so here we see a, a massive challenge to Moses' leadership, okay? Led by Korah, okay? But then he's got 250 well-known leaders, chiefs of the assembly, who have sided with him in rebelling against Moses, okay? So here we have a potential civil war. Certainly when you have 250 well-known leaders, popular, powerful leaders on your side, there is, the, the, there is really the possibility here of Moses being toppled from leadership, all right? And, uh, and just so you know a bit more about Korah, not only is this a huge group of leaders who is rebelling, again, 250, this is a really big rebellion, okay? But not only is it a big rebellion, you have to understand who Korah is in this story. 
And uh, often because we, we glaze over the genealogies and we glaze over the names, uh, we don't realize some of the depths of what is happening in these stories. And number 16 is one of those cases. So we read, you know, Korah had 250 leaders. Wow, this is a big rebellion. But we don't actually stop to, to look into God's word and see who this Korah is. And if you actually look into the genealogies, you will find that Korah is, is, uh, comes from a very powerful and influential family in Israel. Okay? He's not just some random guy out there that hates Moses and Aaron. He is from a very powerful and influential family in Israel. Uh, uh, and the reason I say that is because he's actually from Moses and Aaron's family. Um, Korah's dad is Izhar, Abraham and, or Abraham, Moses, Moses and Aaron's dad is Amram, and Amram and Izhar are brothers. Moses and Aaron and Korah are cousins, okay? So this is right from within close family. I want to show you this because a bunch of this message is based on this point. So I'm going to take you to Exodus 6, just very briefly here. And I want to show you this. Korah is not just anyone. He's not just this guy that doesn't know Moses and Aaron and he hates them. He is close family, cousins, okay? Uh, Exodus 6, verses 18 to 22 uh, gives us a genealogy here. The sons of Kohath, Amram and Izhar. Remember those two names? Hebron and Uziel. You can forget those two names, at least in this message. The years of the life of Kohath being 133 years. These are the clans of the Levites according to their generations. Amram took as his wife Jochebed, his father's sister, and she bore him Aaron and Moses. The years of the life of Amram being 137 years. And the sons of Izhar, remember Amram and Izhar are brothers. And there we see Korah, Nepheg, and Zikri. So Korah is leading a really big rebellion, but it's not just the size of the rebellion here that's a problem. We've got people right from within Moses and Aaron's family that are in this rebellion, okay? And which just makes it uh, even worse. I mean, any of you who has ever been uh, uh, opposed by family or slandered by family or attacked by family, and I know that doesn't happen here in Steinbeck at all. We're all happy Mennonite families. But any of you who's ever had problem, maybe you know someone who's had this problem, um, you know, in family knows that it's it's one thing to be attacked or opposed by someone from outside your family. It's another thing entirely when you're opposed from people within your family. Is that not true? I mean, there's just a whole nother level of hurt there. There's a whole nother level of nastiness there. And then when you look at the whole idea here of a possible civil war, uh, the fact that Korah is from this family means that there's a lot of influence and power there that is behind him as well, just because of who he is. And, uh, you know, as I was meditating on this story this week, it just reminded me of something Jesus said in Matthew chapter 10. And I want to jump over and we'll just look at a couple things that Jesus said here for just a moment, okay? So Moses, major rebellion on his hands. And not only is it a rebellion, he's got his own family. He's got relatives choosing sides. His own family is against him. And Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 10, 34 to 38. He said this, Do not think that I, okay, Jesus speaking, have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Will be those of his own household. Okay? Now Jesus is God. He's not going to be wrong in anything he says. And Jesus said, when he came to earth, he said, if you are a true follower of God, if you really love me and you want to follow me and you're going you're gonna to walk behind me, if you do that, there is a very good chance you're going to have people oppose you from within your own family. Jesus said that. 
And history has borne this out to be true, that this has happened over and over and over again. That when people actually want to walk with God and listen to God and go with God, they're going to actually have people from within their own family that are going to oppose them and come against them. Now, of course, we would all expect, okay, um, you know, if I'm going to follow Jesus and walk with Jesus and love Jesus, I mean, we all have that, you know, somewhere deep in the nether regions of our extended families, right? We all have, you know, kind of the heathen section. Isn't that true? Okay. And uh, somewhere in our extended family, most of us here have got a group of people who are, you know, distantly related to us who are complete unbelievers and pagans, right? Now, we would, we would think that Jesus is talking about them in this passage. Isn't that true? We would think, if I'm going to follow Jesus and love Jesus and walk with Jesus, then I'm going to be opposed by those of my family members who are complete pagans and unbelievers. And it's true, you will sometimes get resistance from them. But the fact of the matter is, experience shows us, and actually Jesus' own life shows us, that in reality, what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 10, oftentimes... It is not the heathens in our family who oppose us when we want to follow Jesus. It's the religious people. Is that not true? It's, the, it's often they call themselves Christians, but they don't think the same way you do. They don't believe in hearing God. They don't believe in walking by faith or any of those sorts of things. They go to church all the time and they're upstanding members. But when you start talking about how passionate you are for Jesus and what he's showing you in your life and you're trying to do stuff for him, it's often the believers, the Christians, the religious people who are the ones who will oppose you. And we find this actually in Jesus' own life, okay? Jesus' own family, and they were all religious people in Jesus' family. Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. I just want to show you one verse here, and some of you are wondering, when are we going to get back to Moses? We will, but I just love Jesus, okay? So let's just do Jesus for just a few more minutes here, and we'll get back to number 16, okay? It all ties together anyway. Mark chapter 3, verses 20, 21. Look at this. Then he, that's Jesus, went home, and the crowd gathered again so they could not even eat. So what's happening is uh, Jesus is healing so many people, and he's speaking words of life with such awe-inspiring authority because he is God in the flesh. So everything he speaks is with God's authority, and it's life. And people are being touched, and they love it. And so many people are flocking in to be touched by Yahweh himself in the flesh. They don't know that, of course, at the time. But to be touched by God's power that Jesus and his disciples can't even eat, okay? Because he's doing so much good. And now look what his family thinks. And when his family heard about it, I mean, you would think the family would be crowding around him too. Woohoo! Awesome! Nope. And when his family heard about it, everybody else wants to be around him, but when his family heard about it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Can you believe that? Here we have God himself in the flesh, Healing people, loving people, speaking words of life and authority, and his family thinks he's nuts. And his family is, they're all religious people. And this pops up a few other times in the Gospels, by the way. But his family is all religious people. If you would have asked any one of his family members, do you believe that Yahweh created the earth? Yes. Do you love Yahweh? Yes. Do you worship Yahweh all the time and go to the temple all the time to worship him? Yes, they would have said yes to all three of those things. Yet, when Yahweh showed up in front of their faces, they thought he was crazy and they opposed him. Oh, there's a whole message right there in that point. There's a whole message right there in that point. Because you can think you love God, you can believe all kinds of thing, right things about God, but if you are nothing more than a religious person, in other words, 
Um, what is a religious person? Here's, here's one of the mistakes we make when we read these stories, about whether it be about Moses and Korah or whether it be about Jesus and his family or Jesus and the Pharisees. We always read the stories and we, th- we read about the religious people and we think, ha, those terrible people, right? And we always automatically put ourselves, because we can always read back, right? We have hindsight. So it's always obvious to us when we read these stories who the bad guys are. And we know from reading the stories that the religious people are the bad guys, we automatically put ourselves in the good guy's seat. I wouldn't have been one of those religious people. Well, what is a religious person? These people thought they loved God. They would have worshipped God. They would have believed right things about God. Yet when he showed up right in front of their faces, they did not love him. They hated him. They opposed him. The fact of the matter is religious people don't love God. They love themselves. And any one of us can become a religious person. In fact, all of us, I think, at various times in our lives do this. Here's what a religious person is. It's someone who stops walking with the Lord and depending on him in their heart. Stops seeking him. Stops loving him. Stops listening for his voice. Stops trying to follow him. But, but, and we all go through periods like that. Is that not true? We all go through periods like that. But do you stop going to church? Not a chance. You stop doing that, but do you stop believing right things about God? No, you don't change all your doctrine when you go through a period like that. You keep doing all the religious stuff, but you stop walking with Jesus in here. When you do that for any amount of time, you have become a religious person. All you are is an empty religious shell. And you walk in that for long enough, and you know what? You'll think, anybody can ask you, do you love God? Yes. Do you go to church all the time? Yes. Do you believe in God? Yes. And yet, everywhere that God appears in your life, you will oppose him. Because your heart will be hard. You won't be soft to him. You'll be a religious person. And God will be trying to do wor- a work in your family or your kids. And you will be opposing his work. In, in, in the whole time, going to church and saying you love God. And he'll be trying to do a work in your workplace. And you will be opposing what he's trying to do in your workplace. Because you're not walking with him. That's why I preached a whole message last week. And I just focused on this whole thing of the tent of meeting. You have got to walk with God and be soft to the Lord in your heart. That's where life comes from. Well, anyway, back to number 16. This is what Moses is going through here, okay? Moses is not being opposed by atheist, heathen, unbelievers. He is being opposed by his own family members, people who are of the tribe of Levi, who work in the tabernacle, who are religious people. And, uh, and so I want to just go back there to number 16, verse 3, if we put that up there. Thanks, Egan. I'll just read that verse to you again. They, Cor, and the other leaders, because I want you to notice a couple things here, assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Notice that Korah is not an unbeliever. This is a very religious person, and he's using spiritual reasoning to explain why he's doing what he's doing. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? And I want to focus on the two things here. First of all, I want to focus on why he's upset. And second of all, I want to show you his reasoning behind why he says he's upset. Okay? The first thing is, why is he upset? He says to Moses, why have you and Aaron exalted yourselves above the rest of the assembly? In other words, Korah is upset because he thinks his cousins, Moses and Aaron, have gotten too big for their britches, essentially. Okay? He's upset because he's, say, he's saying, why do you guys get to be the boss? I mean, we're family here. We're cousins. How come do you guys get to, to tell us all what to do? That's why he's upset. Why have you exalted yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? But again, I want you to notice the reasoning, which I just alluded to here. He's not an atheist. He's not an unbeliever. He's not a pagan. He uses spiritual reasoning to explain why he's upset. Okay? 
He doesn't get up before Moses. And and notice this. Think about this. He doesn't get up before Moses and the 250 rebellious leaders behind him and all the congregation of Israel. He doesn't get up there and say, Moses and Aaron, I want you out as leaders of Israel because I am a rebellious, unsubmissive, selfish person. And I'd rather be the boss than you. Okay? Does he say that? No, that's not what he says. Okay? And there's a couple of reasons why he doesn't say that. First of all, if he said that, nobody would follow him. If he got up in front of all Israel and said, I, let's depose Moses and Aaron as our leaders because I am a rebellious, unsubmissive, selfish brat of a person, everybody would say, whoa, okay, we're not following you in this rebellion. But there's a second reason why he doesn't say that. And the second reason why he doesn't say that is because he is self-deceived. He is self-deceived. See, here's the thing about when we're selfish and rebellious and unsubmissive. Most of the time, we have no idea that that's what we are. I mean, if Korah got up in the morning and had this stark realization, I am a selfish, rebellious, unsubmissive person, he would have to repent. He doesn't realize that. Much of the selfishness we do, we do in complete self-deception. Because our sinful natures are brilliant. Our brains are are so intelligent in some of the wrong ways. And our brains are brilliant at giving us, at fooling ourselves, at giving ourselves good reasons for why we're upset. I'm not upset at Moses and Aaron because I'm selfish. I'm upset because there's an injustice being done. And they're exalting themselves, and I'm standing up for the little guy. Our brains come up with these excuses, but he's completely self-deceived. And so he makes two theological points. His first theological point is, for all in the congregation are holy. Now, he's not using the word holy there. When we use it in modern times, we usually think of the word holy to mean without sin. In the Old Testament, the word holy uh, usually does not mean without sin, because obviously Israel sinned and, and many times, and Korah didn't believe that they were without sin. In the Old Testament, the word holy is, is often used or usually used to, to uh, describe something that has been set apart to God. So all of the utensils in the tabernacle and later when the temple was built, all of the utensils of the temple were called holy because they were separated from daily use and devoted just to God. And the Israelites, if you, in Old Testament theology, Israel was considered to be holy to the Lord because they were separated out from the nations to be devoted just to God. Okay? So Korah's point here is, he says, all of us Israelites are holy. We're all separated to the Lord, not just Moses and Aaron. Guess what? True. It's a good theological point, Korah. He's not right, wrong in his theology there. Second theological point he makes is, and the Lord is among them. Second theological point Korah makes is he says, God is with all of us Israelites, not just Moses and Aaron. True again. He makes two correct theological points, okay? And I want you to notice something here again. You, when, when theology, you can have the best theology in the world, but if you have a selfish heart, it comes out twisted. You can have right theology, you can believe in the right God, you can do all the religious stuff, and that's, these are the people who are often the most self-deceived, and you have no heart for what God's actually doing. If you ask Korah, do you love Yahweh? Yes. Do you worship Yahweh? Yes. And you ask him theological questions, does he get them right? Yes. And yet, he is directly fighting and rebelling against God's servant. That should make all of us just a little bit nervous it should make all of us just a little bit nervous. 
Because when you have a selfish, hard heart, it doesn't matter how much good theology you have up here. And good theology is important. I'm not against good theology. I love doctrine. We have to believe right things. No question about it. But just having good theology up here, but having a hard heart, you can still end up being against God all over in your life. And that is a little bit of a nerve-wracking thing. Now again, as I said before, hindsight is always 20-20, right? And so this story is, is about 3,500 years old. And so we read this story 3,500 years after the event. And again, like I said before, it's obvious to us who the bad guy is. And we read about Korah, and we just know instantly as we read the story, Korah's a bad guy. Because we know from the whole story, we have the Bible, we know that Moses is the good guy, so obviously Korah is the bad guy. And so we all think as we read number 16, well, I would have sided with Moses. And I actually think differently. I think that many of us here today, and I think even myself at various points in my life, but I think many of us here today, had we been alive in a time of number 16, that we would have ended up siding with the wrong group. You say, no way! There's not a chance! I'm a Christian! I've been a Christian for years! Of course I wouldn't have sided with Korah. Let me, I just want to take you a little deeper into this thing here. I want to show you what exactly it is. Like, we see that Korah is upset at Moses and Aaron for exalting themselves above the congregation. But that doesn't tell us practically what's going on that's setting him off. So I want to show you exactly, precisely what it is that is making him so upset at his cousins. And after you see this, you're going to see that there's a whole bunch of us here today that for sure at various points in our life, if we had been alive at this time, we would have sided on the exact wrong side. We would have been fighting against God too. So what is it that made Korah so angry? Well, let me just sum it up for you very quickly. The re... At its most base form, the reason Korah was so upset at Moses and Aaron is because they were bossing him around. They were bossing him. But according to how we would define bossing someone around, to use a bit of a childish term, but according to how we would define that, Korah was upset at Moses and Aaron because they were, and especially Aaron and his sons, were always bossing Korah and his sons around. You say, really? Let me, I'm going to take you to a passage in Numbers chapter 3 right away. Um, But before I do that, you have to understand something about the Levites. We actually, in modern times, there's so many things about the Bible we don't understand. So when we read these stories, we we don't get, it doesn't come alive to us. Why are people so upset here? Okay, so let me just give you a little little bit of uh, background on the Levites. Okay, we all know Israel, the nation of Israel, is broken up into 12 tribes, right? 12 tribes. And we all know, most of us here would know, that one of those 12 tribes is the tribe of Levi, And most of you here would know that the tribe of Levi is what we would call the tribe of priests, right? They were the ones who worked with the tabernacle and later on when the temple got built with the temple, but they did the worship stuff, right? And so most of us would say, yeah, tribe of Levi, that was the tribe of priests. Actually, that's not accurate. The tribe of Levi was not a tribe of priests. I mean, in a general sense, sometimes the Bible refers to them that way because they all were working with stuff that had to do with the temple or the tabernacle or whatever. But if you actually look accurately at what Scripture says, the tribe of Levi was not a tribe of priests. See, we have this idea that all the men, all the Levites, were like this big, happy commune of priests, okay? And they were all working together, doing the sacrifices, doing this, doing the worship, and it was just this big group of priests, And that is not at all what it was. If you actually look in Scripture, I'm going to show you this in a passage uh, right now. In fact, why don't I just read? Let's go to Numbers chapter 3, 
verses 5 to 10, what you're going to find is that there was only a very tiny select group of priests within the tribe of Levi. And the priests were only Aaron and his sons. That's it. Tribe of Levi is not priests. It's just Aaron and his sons. You know what the rest of the Levites were called by God? They were not called priests. They were called servants. The tribe of Levi was a tribe of servants. Aaron and his direct sons, not nephews, not, you know, cousins, none of that. Just Aaron and his direct sons were the priests. And God called the rest of the Levites to be servants to Aaron. I want to show you this now, and I want you to notice the language that God uses. It's very strong language. Numbers chapter 3, verses 5 to 10. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Bring the tribe of Levi near, and set them before Aaron the priest, that they may minister to him. Now, the Hebrew there it actually literally just means serve. If you read the NASB and a number of the other translations, it just says serve. That's what it means, okay? So God says, Bring the whole tribe of Levi here and put them in front of Aaron the priest that they may serve him. Okay? Already, ooh, our Western democratic mindset doesn't like that so much. Doesn't seem fair. Anyway, let's keep going. They shall keep guard over him and over the whole congregation before the tent of meeting as they minister at the tabernacle. They shall guard all the furnishings of the tent of the meeting and keep guard over the people of Israel as they minister at the tabernacle. And you shall, now notice the language here, you shall give the Levites to Aaron and his sons. They are holy, not H-O-L-Y, but W-H-O-L-L-Y, which means totally and completely. They are totally and completely given to him from among the people of Israel. And you shall appoint Aaron and his sons, and they shall guard their priesthood. But if any outsider comes near, he shall be put to death. Okay? So the tribe of Levi was not technically a tribe of priests. Aaron and his sons were priests, and the rest of the tribe was explicitly given by God to Aaron and his sons. You will serve him. Okay? So Aaron and his sons did all the priestly worship stuff. They did all the sacrificing. They were the only ones who could touch the sacred objects. They were the only ones who could go into the inner, you know, courts of the tabernacle and do all that sort of stuff. The rest of the Levites, you know what they did? And I could develop this with many, many passages of scripture, and I will show you a couple in just a moment here. But they did guard duty. They carried all the heavy stuff when the tabernacle had to get moved. They cleaned all the stuff in the tabernacle. They did the upkeep and the fixing. And they did whatever other jobs Aaron and, and his sons told them to do. That's what they did. They were servants, not priests. They were given totally and completely to Aaron and his sons. Aaron and his sons will tell you what to do, and you will do it. Because you were a tribe of, pre, of, of servants. Okay? They were not even allowed to touch or look at the sacred objects. Let me just show you this in Numbers chapter 4. And I'll just read you a few verses here, starting in verse 5. And God is giving them instructions, the Levites, for what to do when you're going to pack up the tabernacle and move. Okay? And, uh, and I want you to notice what happens here. Aaron and his sons have to go in first and cover everything up so that the rest of the Levites don't come in and die from looking at the holy stuff. Okay? When the camp is to set out, Aaron and his sons shall go in and take down the veil of the screen and cover the ark of the testimony with it. Then they shall put on it a covering of goat skin and spread on top of that a cloth all of blue. So three layers. Aaron and his sons, you cover the ark of covenant with a screen. You cover it with a curtain. You cover it with a cloth. But you cover it with three layers because I want to make sure none of the other Levites look at this thing or touch it by accident and die. Okay? 
Uh, verse 7, and over the table of the bread of the presence, they shall spread a cloth of blue and put on it the plates, the dishes for incense, the bowls and the flagons for the drink offering, the regular showbread also. He goes on for a few verses of all the things that Aaron and his sons have to go in first and cover. Okay, and now we see what the rest of the Levites are going to do. Verse 15, and when Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath who are one of the clans of Levi, which includes Korah's family, their cousins. After that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these. So they do the heavy lifting. That's what they do. But they must not touch the holy things, lest they die. These are the things of the tent of meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. And now just a couple of verses later, God just really emphasizes this point. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Let not the tribe of the clans of the Kohathites be destroyed from among the Levites, but deal thus with them that they may live and not die when they come near to the most holy things. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint them each to his task and his burden, but they shall not go in to look on the holy things even for a moment, lest they die. Now I want you to notice that line there. Aaron and his sons shall go in and appoint, to, to appoint them each to his task and to his burden. Okay? I told you before that one of the reasons Korah is upset is because Aaron in particular, not even just Moses, but Aaron in particular, is bossing him around. And that's exactly what we see here. The entire tribe of Levi has been given over to Aaron and his sons to serve them. And whenever they want to move the tabernacle, which was quite regularly, Aaron and his sons would first go cover everything up. Then they would call in the Levites and they would direct them. Uncles, cousins, nephews, whatever. You, take that. You four, pick that up. You three, hey, You're not doing it right over there. You three over there, pick that up. And they would appoint to them each their task and their burden. And there was no questioning this. There was no, you know, God saying, you know, and let's, you know, try and make it a little more fair here or whatever. And sometimes they'll get to be in charge. No, no, Aaron and his sons will have total and complete control over the rest of the Levites. And you will do as they say. Now that I have explained to you a little more where Korah is coming from, let me ask you, how many of you would have liked to be Korah? That your cousins will be above you and your kids for your entire life and your kids' lives. Your cousins will be the ones who tell you what to do and when to do it. And you will not do any of the sacrificing. You will not be able to move up in rank, so to speak. How would you feel? I bet you there's about half of you here today who have just switched sides. You've just switched sides in number 16 and you're feeling terrible now. Chris! You've just brought me over to the dark side. I've just gone right over to, you know, in number 16 because I totally empathize with Korah now. Well, let me tell you about something, something about that. The fact that we empathize with Korah and the fact that Korah felt angry at Moses and Aaron because he thought it's not fair. And when we read this story and when you actually look at what's happening, we are inside scream, not fair. Not fair. But let me tell you something. The fact that our insides scream not fair and the fact that Korah's insides scream not fair says nothing about whether God is just or not. It says nothing about that and says everything about the state of wickedness and selfishness and unsubmissiveness in our hearts. See, we, when I tell you all the stuff I just told you about Korah, we start to think, well, you know, Korah did have a legitimate beef. The fact that we feel that and the fact that Korah felt it does not say anything about Moses and Aaron and God being unfair. It says something about our hearts that we view it that way. Because you see, in our world and in our hearts, having to serve and submit is a curse. Having to serve and submit to someone in our world and in our hearts 
And let's not, let's not fiddle around here and pretend like it's out there in the culture, but it's not here in the church. It's right through the church and in our hearts. And in our world, people line up, including us as Christians, we will line up to be served. And the desk there for where you can line up to serve and submit to someone and be their servant, you don't have to employ anyone there because no one's going there. But I wonder today, what if God views service and submission completely opposite to the way we do? What if God views service and submission completely opposite and upside down to the way we view it? We view, you know, who would you rather be, Aaron and Moses or Korah and the rest of the Levites? And we think, well, Korah and the rest of the Levites got the short end of that stick. That's how we feel. But what if God views it completely differently? In fact, he does. And much of the New Testament is devoted to a theology of service. To a theology that God thinks serving is a blessing. In fact, God's own heart. Let, this is mind-blowing. I wish I had time to develop this, but that would be more hours. But I want to just jump over to, to uh, lost where I am here. Mark chapter 10. I want to jump over to Mark chapter 10 for just a moment. I want to show you something Jesus said. What if God views serving and submitting not as a curse, but as a blessing? In that case, our response to that blessing, thinking it's a curse, shows our wickedness, not his unfairness. Is that not true? Well, let me show you something here. Mark chapter 10. I could show you many, many passages. I I just have time for one here. Mark chapter 10, 42 to 45. This is what Jesus said to his disciples. And Jesus called them to him and said to, him, said to them, famous passage, right? You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant. By the way, that phrase will hold 100% true for all eternity. If you don't have a servant's heart, and you are an unsubmissive person, and you can't stand being told what to do, you can never be great in God's kingdom. Never. Because he says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, think about this, Jesus himself. Who is Jesus? He's God The Bible tells us he's the one who created the world. In Genesis 1, when it says, in the beginnings God created the earth, that was Jesus. That's what it tells us in Hebrews. He created the earth. He is God himself. He's king. He's sovereign over everything. He is king of the universe. And when he put on human flesh and came and lived among us, what did he do? He came to serve, not to be served. That is mind-blowing. If we had just a piece of that kind of sovereignty, if we sat anywhere near to that throne, I can pretty much guarantee you most of us would have a lot of people serving us and we would not do a lot of serving. But God, the ultimate king and the most sovereign and powerful of all, his heart loves to serve. For even I, even the Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God's kingdom is completely upside down from the kingdoms of this world. Upside down. In God's kingdom, God's people line up. If you have two choices, you can line up here and you can be served. 
Or you can line up here and you get to serve and submit to someone and they get to be your boss. Everybody in God's kingdom lines up here. Because in God's kingdom, they know that submitting and serving is a secret to joy and life. Because it's when you serve and submit, that's when you tap into God's heart because that's what he loves and you experience eternal delights and his life coming alive in you. But we totally don't get that. So we read number 16, and then I show you how Korah's getting bossed around and how him and all the Levites have to be servants to Aaron Moses, and they have to do exactly what they say and submit to them. And we think, boy, that is a curse. I think I would have rebelled there too. A whole bunch of us would have. And that exposes not God's unfairness. It exposes the wickedness of our hearts because when God made Korah and the Levites submit, he was not thinking, Korah, You guys have got to submit. These guys are better than you and you've got to submit. God saw it as, here's a blessing, Levites. You get to serve and submit. You get to know the joy of being underneath someone and submitting there and doing what they say. Well, let's keep going here. Verse four. Skip ahead past the next one there. Egan, I'm going to jump past that one. Let's just keep going. Let's keep going with this story here and see what happens as a result. Verse 4, how does Moses respond to this rebellion? When Moses heard it, he fell on his face. And he said to Korah and all his company, In the morning, the Lord will show who is his and who is holy and will bring him near to him. The one whom he chooses, he will bring near to him. Do this, take censers, Korah and all his company, put fire in them and put incense on them before the Lord tomorrow. And the man whom the Lord chooses shall be the Holy One. You have gone too far, sons of Levi. I have to stop here just for a moment because, because Moses responds here to Korah and all the leaders. And remember, this is being done very publicly. Korah is here with 250 well-known leaders. We've got the congregation of Israel here. It's all being done right in front of them. And Moses' response to this attack and this rebellion is absolutely astounding. This is astounding. The first thing he does is he falls on his face in front of everyone. He falls on his face before Korah and all the, all, all the, the rebels and all the congregation of Israel and God. He falls on his face. He humbles himself. I mean, that is, I don't know how many of you have ever been attacked or criticized in any way or slandered. But have you ever tried in the moment when they're attacking you, in the moment, Have you ever tried humbling yourself in front of your attackers? I mean, that is is spiritual maturity at a whole new level. I mean, that's a level of godliness. That's gold going into the fire, and it's getting tested. And when it comes out, it's being proved to be pure gold. I mean, I'm not there yet, but I'm praying, God, I want you to take me there. We should all aspire to that kind of maturity. That in the face of withering attack and rebellion, his first response is not to defend himself. He doesn't go through all the things. Look at how much I've suffered being a leader and how hard I've tried and God showed me and this is why I should be the leader and, he's, and sling mud back at Korah. You guys are a bunch of rebels. He doesn't do any of that. He falls on his face and humbles himself in front of all of them. And then the next thing he does is he actually trusts his defense to God. He says, tomorrow morning, we're going to see who God chooses. Wow! That is another level of spiritual maturity. And especially when we think of, as we've gone this summer through the whole story of Moses, when we think of where he came from, most of his life he would not have responded that way. Is that not true? And that gives me hope 
Because as he walked with God, and last week, I mean, the whole secret to the strength here is what I talked about last week is this guy is spending regular time in the tent of meeting with God. That's the only way you come out godly like that. And he has radically changed from being himself a rebel back in his early years to this place of such true godliness that in the face of attack and criticism, he humbles himself, doesn't defend himself, and says, let's let God show us who the leader should be. Impressive. Anyway, verse 8, And Moses said to Korah, Hear now, you sons of Levi, is it too small a thing for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation and minister to them? And that he has brought you near to him and all your brothers, the sons of Levi, with you. And would you seek the priesthood also? In other words, he's telling them what I just told you guys before. In God's eyes, they were lucky. The Levites should have considered themselves lucky that they got to hold, they got to carry stuff for the tabernacle. And Moses says, you guys are lucky. God gave this to you. And now you're going to want the priesthood too? God hasn't given that to you. You're lucky what you have. Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered. Their rebellion, and this is where religious people get it wrong. Religious people have all the right theology. They go to church, and then they get all self-righteous, and they rebel against human authority for their theological reasons. And what they don't realize is they hold their leaders in contempt because they think, hey, we're all just sinners saved by grace. Theology puts us all on the same level, and they think that God doesn't have authority and submission in his kingdom. And then they oppose on theological reasons, thinking that they're on God's side. They oppose God's leaders. And God takes it so personally, he says, you're not opposing some human being, you're opposing me. Therefore, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? We jump ahead now to verse 18. And Moses said to Korah, be present, you and all your company before the Lord, you and they, and Aaron tomorrow. Then Korah assembled all the congregation against him at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the glory of the Lord appeared to all the congregation. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Say to the congregation, Get away from the dwellings of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Then Moses rose and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. And he spoke to the congregation, saying, Depart, please, from the tents of these wicked men, and touch nothing of theirs, lest you be swept away with all their sins. And there's a whole point there. There's a place... There is, there is a place in our lives when there are Christians, sometimes they call themselves Christians, they're in our lives, and they're bitter, they're rebellious, they're unsubmissive. They might know all kinds of good theology, but they're selfish, bitter people. And, if they, and I'm not talking about non-Christians here. We can't expect anything better of non-Christians. I mean, if we're going to reach non-Christians, we're going to talk to a lot of bitter, hard people. But there comes a place, and Paul talks about this in the New Testament as well. I'm not going to jump over there right now. But there comes a place when there are people who call themselves Christians and should know better. And when they persist in that kind of behavior, we need to actually get away from them. Don't be around them because you can be swept away in their sins. Lest you be swept away with all their sins. So they got away from the dwelling of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. And Dathan and Abiram came out and stood at the door of their tents, together with their wives, their sons, and their little ones. I'm going to come back to that in just a few moments, because that line bothers a lot of people. And Moses said, Hereby you shall know that the Lord has sent me to do all these works, and that it has not been of my own accord. If these men die as all men die, or if they are visited by the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. 
But if the Lord creates something new and the ground opens its mouth and swallows them up with all that belongs to them and they go down alive into Sheol, which is the place of the dead, the holding place, until judgment, then you shall know that these men have despised the Lord. And as soon as he had finished speaking all these words, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up with their households and all the people who belonged to Korah and all their goods. So they and all that belonged to them went down alive into Sheol, and the earth closed over them, and they perished from the midst of the assembly. And all Israel who were around them fled at their cry, for they said, Lest the earth swallow us up. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed 250 men offering the incense. So here we see the judgment of God against selfish, rebellious, unsubmissive religious people. Every one of those people that went down alive into Sheol. By the way, this isn't a fairy tale. This is a real story. It actually happened to real people. And any of these guys, you would ask them before, do you believe in God? Do you love God? Yes. But they had no idea that they were actually against God because of the hardness of their hearts. And so they went down alive into Sheol. Now, one of the things we think is, when we read a story like this, we put a lot of distance between ourselves and the story. And, and one of the things we think is because, I mean, we don't see... God opening up the earth and swallowing up selfish, rebellious people, okay? Thank goodness. Our gathering here today would be considerably smaller. I might not even be preaching, okay? But we don't see the earth opening up to swallow people when they're selfish and rebellious. And so here's the mistake we make in our logic. Things have changed. God used to get mad at that. He doesn't get mad at it anymore. That's our logic. False. How could Yahweh change? He's eternal, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To, for him to change would mean that he was not perfect in the first place. He's eternal. He does not change. If this sort of behavior and hard-heartedness made him angry 3,500 years ago, it will still make him angry today, just as angry. See, the difference is that usually God waits. In Numbers 16, he brought the judgment immediately because he wanted to teach the children of Israel a lesson and us. Because he knew we'd be reading the scriptures for thousands of years. But he wanted to teach people a lesson for thousands of years about this sin and how bad selfishness and unsubmissiveness is. And so in that case, he judged Korah immediately. But let me, let me tell you something. God is a just God. It's not like someday in the future we're going to look back and we're going to go, wow, God treated Korah a lot more severely than he treated all the other religious, selfish, you know, rebellious, unsubmissive people. That will never happen. He's fair. He's not going to do worse to Korah and better to everyone else. The difference is that someday we're all going to have to stand on, that, that on, there's going to be a judgment day, and on judgment day, people who were hard-hearted, they might have called themselves Christians, but they were hard-hearted towards God and unsubmissive and selfish, they're going to stand before Jesus, and they will get the same exact treatment that Korah got. Now, some of you are sitting there and you're thinking, oh, no, I'm selfish, Right? Oh, what's going to happen to me, right? Well, I mean, we could all lift our hands up. If I said here, truthfully, let's all put up our hands, anyone here who's selfish, then we would all put up our hands except for the liars. <laughs> okay? So, it's, so you say, oh, well, we're all going to get court treatment on judgment. No, no, that's not what I'm saying. Here's the thing. God does love to forgive. He loves to forgive. The antidote to our selfishness is... Much of what I talked about last week, the tent of meeting. You go to Jesus and you abide in him and you confess and you say, Lord, I am selfish. 
And when you go to him like that, he loves to forgive. And as you spend time with him and you love him in, in the word and you worship him, he changes you and takes some of that selfishness out of you so that over time you are being transformed from one level of glory to another as we looked at last week into his image. But for those who just happily go through life hard-hearted and opposing God, thinking themselves Christians, I, I tell you that the day will come, they will not be treated more kindly than Korah. Because he is a just God. I should just say one last thing here as well about, uh, about the Sheol and the kids because that is, I, I mentioned that I would come back to that in just a moment. Uh, a lot of people are bothered by this story because of the fact that some of these leaders, not all the leaders, but some of these leaders had their kids with them and they all went down into Sheol and people say, well, how can God send the kids to hell with, the, with their dads for what their dads did? And so I just want to clear this up very quickly. I don't have lots of time to get into this. But I want to tell you, categorically, God never judges people to hell for, their, for somebody else's sin. Never. Never, never, never. Okay? And the thing you have to understand, you have to understand something. And I referred to a paper three weeks ago in a message. I'm going to refer to it again now. But I have a paper written on Sheol and Hades, and, which makes sense of this whole story. But you have to realize that nobody is going to be in hell for their parents' sin or somebody else's sin. Nobody. The only people who will be in hell in the end are people who deserve to be there and should be there because God is a just, loving God. Okay? And so uh, when it says here that they all went down into Sheol alive together, the thing you have to realize about Sheol, and I'm not going to develop this in Scripture now. If you want to see the Scriptures, I've got a paper. I don't have time. But before Jesus died on the cross, the place where all dead people went was Sheol. Okay? In the New Testament, in Greek, they call it Hades. But all people, Abraham went there, David went there, Moses went there after he died, and Korah and the, these rebellious leaders and many of their kids went there. Okay? Sheol is where all dead people went before Jesus died on the cross. Now, before Jesus died on the cross, Sheol was divided into two parts. And again, all this is, there's much Bible on this, but if you want to see the Bible, you've got to Contact me during the week. But Sheol was divided into two parts. In Luke 16, Jesus called, one part was for good people, and Jesus called that part Abraham's bosom in Luke 16. And so Abraham and David and all the righteous saints and the innocent people, they went there because Jesus hadn't died on the cross yet. They couldn't go to heaven. And so they went there while they were waiting, and they didn't know the plan of salvation. They were just believing in God. But they had to wait till Jesus died on the cross to get saved just the way we do. And it actually says in Peter, and this is all in the paper, but it says that Jesus actually went down and preached to them and they got saved, okay? But anyway, uh, so there was a holding tank there in Sheol, which was where all the innocent people and the good people went as they waited for Jesus to die on the cross. And then the other half was a place of torment that is still in existence today, what we now call just Hades. And that's where people are waiting for the day of judgment when they will all be cast into hell, Okay? So now in this story, this story is a stumbling block for lots of people because the kids go down to Sheol too. Well, of course they went to Sheol because that's where everybody went. But I'll tell you categorically, there are no innocent children that are sent to hell for somebody else's sins. And so any innocent children or God-fearing people that were sucked up, that were, that were caught in this judgment as well, will have gone to Abraham's bosom. And, uh, and then because God takes care of it that way, he's just. But all the wicked, rebellious leaders will have gone to the wrong side, okay? And there's lots of scripture about that which I don't have time to show you, okay? God is a merciful God, okay? Amen? He's a merciful God. Now, this is the last story. This is the last message in the Moses series. So I got to end with some good news because there's actually a really good ending to this story. Really good ending, okay? A whole bunch of people died, went alive in a shield. Yeah, not, not so happy. It's a good warning for us. 
The cool thing is that God actually redeemed. Korah is the leader. He's the leader rebel. He is wicked. He gets judged. He goes down to Sheol. He'll spend eternity in hell. But the amazing thing is that God in his mercy redeems Korah's family. And I want to show you something. Very interesting genealogy. And I never knew this before. I was meditating on this this week, and I came across it, and it just blew my mind. Ten chapters later, Numbers 26, Numbers 16 is a story of Korah and how wicked and rebellious and selfish and unsubmissive he is, okay? And in Numbers 26, Moses is writing a genealogy, and in the genealogy, he comes across Korah and Dathan and Abiram, and he says something really fascinating in one little verse at the end of it. Okay, let me read you the three verses. So here's the genealogy. These are the Dathan and Abiram chosen from the congregation who contended against Moses and Aaron in the company of Korah when they contended against the Lord and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them up together with Korah when that company died. Yada, yada. We just read all this, right? When the fire devoured 250 men and they became a warning. Next verse. And then there's just this little verse in there. And because Moses, again, knows all these people. These are his cousins. These are his relatives. He knows what happens to Korah. He was there for that story. It was all there. And then he writes in this genealogy. Look at this. But the sons of Korah did not die. Now, whoa. Because we would assume that Korah's sons were in, that went down to Sheol with Korah. But something happened, and we don't, doesn't tell us what. Something happened that Korah's sons didn't go down to Sheol. They got separated out from Korah and the rebels. And we don't know how. Perhaps they were old enough that they saw the sin that their father was doing and they had enough spiritual perception that they separated themselves and they were saved that way. Maybe they were young. In that case, maybe it was their mother. Maybe their mother or someone saw, you know, what Korah was doing and separated out her kids from what he was doing and saved them that way. We don't know. But here's the really cool thing about this. Not only do they live, okay, God doesn't hold their father's sins against them. He so redeems these guys that they go on to become some of the most famous songwriters and worship leaders in all of Israelite history. And the reason I know that is because 11 of their songs made it into the book of Psalms, and two of them for sure, there's actually probably more, I didn't have a chance to go through all 11, but two of the songs they wrote are still being sung in churches today. They are two of the most famous psalms that we still have today. For example, how many of you have ever heard the song or sung the song, and we don't sing it much anymore, it's kind of out of fashion right now, but it's from Psalm 42, and it's As the Deer Pants for the Water. You know who wrote that? Korah's sons. Let me show you. You go to Psalm 42, okay? And if you look this up in your Bible, at the top of all the Psalms, it will tell you who wrote the Psalm, okay? And this is what it says at the top of Psalm 42. To the choir master, a masculine, which is a musical term, of the sons of Korah. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so, my, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? How about there's another one? How many of you have heard the song, Better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere? Okay, that's another famous song, right? Another famous song. Better is one day in your courts, God, than a thousand anywhere else. That's from Psalm 84. Look what it says at the top of Psalm 84. To the choir master, according to the Giddith. So again, that's some kind of musical term. I don't think it's rap, okay? But anyway. (laughs) To the choir master, according to the Giddith, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Now this one in particular I want you to pay attention to. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. And they're talking about the tabernacle here, which is amazing because remember, Korah wasn't thankful to be around the tabernacle. He wanted to be the boss. These guys have learned their lesson and they have a soft heart toward God. They just love to be around the tabernacle. How lovely is your dwelling place, O Lord of hosts. 
My soul longs, yes, faints for the courts of the Lord. My heart and flesh sing for joy to the living God. Now look at this in verse 10. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. And look, I love this next part. When you think of the history of what their dad did. Look at this line now. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God. Think about that. I'd rather be a doorkeeper. Korah said, I don't want to be a servant. It's not enough for me to serve God. It's not enough for me to be a doorkeeper or a guard. I want to be the priest. I'm sick and tired of my cousins bossing me around. But his sons learn their lesson from the punishment God inflicts on their dad. And they come back and say, I would rather be a doorkeeper. I'm happy to be just a servant. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. Isn't God good to redeem a family like that? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we love you. Your word is so rich. It's so good. Father, I pray that a love for your word would overtake us as a church. That we would become hungry and obsessed with mining deep into your word. We've just looked at one little piece. I didn't even get through all of number 16. And there's just so much stuff there, Father. Lord Jesus, I pray that you would give us and help us to have a serving, submissive heart. Lord, we crave that. We, don't, we come defective, Lord. We've got a cancer in our souls. We are unsubmissive and rebellious. Jesus, Draw us into your presence and soften us there. Save us from being religious people. Save us from being people who know right theology but oppose you everywhere we meet you. Thank you, Father, for what you're going to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.